I'll be reading from Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Right, if you would have a seat this morning, we're about to get started. Uh, I do want you to know this, though. Even though it's a very short psalm, uh, we are going to be moving through it at blinding speed. So I'll just go ahead and apologize for that this morning because we are going to use the last uh, 15 minutes of our gathering, uh, not necessarily in worship, but uh, with a big announcement for our family here. Uh, But before we do that, I want to deal with this psalm rightly. So I've got a question just to kind of initiate, to kind of get the juices flowing, as it were, this morning, with a question. What do you think of when you think of the word ambition? How does it strike you? How does it hit your ears? When you think of the word ambition, what is it that first occurs to you? And I wonder if you could even pay attention to the connotation uh, that that word has for you. Is it positive? Is it negative? Is it something that you think, uh, uh, ambition, good, yes, go after it, do it, work hard? Or is it something where it's like ambition, pride, uh, somebody who's going after evil or wicked things? Well, ambition really, just as a definition, is just the strong desire to achieve something. Uh, Normally, it's a strong desire to achieve something that's going to take a little bit of work, a little bit of duty, a little bit of diligence. That's what ambition is. I've always been a relatively ambitious person, not, not the most ambitious, ambitious person you've ever known, but not a person that didn't want anything out of life. And uh, to be honest with you, I've experienced that ambition that's just kind of in me in both positive and negative ways. I've had uh, things that I've wanted to do that were very positive. I I feel like I had healthy attitudes about it. I think that I trusted the Lord in them. And then I've had other uh, ambitions that maybe had more to do with self, had more to do with things that I wanted, I wanted to achieve, or some sort of acclaim or prestige that I wanted for myself. So there is, even within us, these positive and negative ways that we think about achieving something in our ambition. So I want to ask you this morning, are you an ambitious person? Do you consider yourself to have some level of ambition? Is it something that you want? Is there something that you want to achieve? What is it? Why do you want to achieve that thing? I think we owe it uh, to ourselves really to accentuate that, to know what it is that we're after, to know where we are on this spectrum. There's a story that I think about. It's not necessarily one that I would recommend to you. There's a movie uh, named There Will Be Blood. And uh, this was a very popular... Yes, that's where we're going this morning. My wife looked very disapprovingly at me. Uh, it uh, It was not necessarily the movie that I want to recommend to you, but it was like a, a textbook in ambition and where it kind of leads when it is something that you are going after at all costs. You see, in this movie, there, Daniel Day-Lewis actually played a man named Daniel Plainview who was after something. He was, a, uh, he was a, a person that went and actually sought out silver. And in the midst of mining for silver, he struck oil. And he got a taste of the kind of uh, riches that came along with that. But it wasn't the riches that he was necessarily worried about. It was the power. 
He was an ambitious man. And as he uh, started drilling for oil, he had to go and uh, lie and uh, be a person that was uh, not just two-faced, but uh, took on whatever the situation allowed so that he could get what he wanted. He was a very ambitious man. And in the midst of the movie, he uh, is lied to, uh, spoiler alert, by this man who pretends to be his long-lost brother. And something about there being a kinship with him uh, caused him just to be very open with him. And so one night as they were uh, drinking together, he, uh, he says this very memorable line in the movie. He says, I have a competition within me. I want no one to succeed. I hate most people. He was driven literally just to conquer things, to conquer people. It didn't matter if somebody got in his way, he was going to destroy them on a search for power, for his prestige, for him to get what he wanted. This movie, again, was just a a master's course in how vain ambition consumed him all the way to the drunken and isolated and vengeful, and yes, as the title would suggest to you, bloody end. He was murderous in his ambition. Now, most of us don't have that kind of problem with ambition. The, the movie really tells a story about where c- ambition can take you if it is your only life's goal. But for most of us, that's not our problem. We're not willing to murder to get what we want. For most of us, I see maybe a lack of ambition at all that just kind of leads to a listless life. We kind of sink into the comfort of life, going to this fast food restaurant, uh, not really trying to uh, achieve another level in our career, and it just kind of leaves us uh, listless. It leaves us without any kind of wind in our sails. I see those kinds of things really uh, creating in a person a hollowness over time. Or I see in people great ambition. Like a lot of ambition. Uh, Many of us, if we think back to our high school or college career, we had these great aspirations, these desires to do something big and significant with our lives, but we didn't necessarily take the time to cultivate the tools that we would actually need to work hard and be dutiful to achieve those things that we were ambitious about. And what I see the problem being there is, is that we end in kind of this disjointedness between high expectations, low performance, and we feel defeated. I see that in a lot, especially of men in, uh, in, in my life, just this great desire to do big things, but not yet the duty or the diligence to accomplish them. It's hard to be conscientious. I, I see lots of other areas where, um, you know, the, maybe a person does have really high aspirations, and then they also have the dutifulness to go after those things, but that ambition uh, leaves their uh, spouse, it leaves their family really sidelined. There are lots of different ways that ambition leaves us in a very problematic way. This morning, the psalmist, what he wants to do is reroute our ambitions toward those of a kingdom, towards those that have a kingdom shape, a contour, an informedness in the kingdom. That's what the psalmist is going to be after this morning. The psalmist is not going to ask us to be unambitious. For those of us who want to be ambitious, I've got good news for you. The psalmist is not going to ask you not to be, but he may ask you to do that in a way That is surprising. Why? Because this morning we see that the psalmist asks us to be ambitious in our souls. Not necessarily in our minds or in our hands, but in our souls. What we learned this morning is that the ambitious soul strives for a calm, quiet contentment. 
The ambitious soul strives for a calm and quiet contentment in our lives. And we're going to kind of take a route to get there this morning. It's going to be a little different than most mornings, uh, not just because we're trying to achieve some amount of brevity, but simply because we don't have that many verses to deal with this morning. There's no need for kind of summary statements. What we're going to do is spend the first few moments expositing the text. I'll, I'll explain a little bit more about what we mean about that here in a moment. Well, then what we're going to do is see the gospel in the text. If you look at it and you're honest, you think, well, where is the gospel in the midst of this text? How do you bring it out? And then lastly, I want to apply that gospel. So expose the text, see the gospel, and then make application of that gospel. And what we find in the midst of this, uh, these psalms of ascent is that the ascending worshiper uses uh, kind of a place of humility to begin. He, he actually wants to, you to know that if you're wanting to be ambition, you, ambitious, you have to know something about what it is to be humble. So what I want for us to do this morning is for us to go there in that curious language and dive in. I want for us to exposit the text. Now, that word exposit, I want to take a brief moment just to define that word. It may be a new word for you. Exposit, the root word of it is to expose. Our goal really every single week is to expose what the original message of the scripture was to the original hearers and then make application for it. We want to actually expose what it is there in the text. And if you don't know that we're deathly serious about this, this is something that we even need into our elder doctrinal statement as a top-tier issue. Why is that important? Because at City Church, we want not elders, not a vision statement, not anything else. We want for God's Word to determine where we go. That should be very comforting for you as you look at a guy like me and go, I can't put total trust in that guy. What you really want to do is put your trust in the word. We want to expose week in and week out what the original intent of the text is. We want to remain committed to preaching in an expository way. Verse 1, it says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. Now, for most of us, if we just are honest, we, uh, we kind of uh, confront this first verse and we just go, that sounds totally different than most psalms. Most psalms are about getting your eyes lifted very high, about delivering your heart to high and exalted pra- uh, places. And here, the psalmist is saying, I'm not doing that. I'm not raising my heart. I'm not lifting my eyes. And you might go, what a strange way of talking about it. The very important thing that you must notice about this text and also the subsequent verses is the word to, T-O-O. It's a matter of degree. Oh Lord, he's speaking. The psalmist is saying that he's not exalting himself, but he's talking to someone specifically. He's talking to the Lord. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. What is he saying? The psalmist is saying that he's not exalting himself. He's no snob with his nose and eyes high in the air. Now, we're not as familiar with this phrase. We would have read it in the original Hebrew if you had been a Jew at the time with this idea of snobbery. My eyes are not raised too high. We think of it as a nose. You're stuck up. You stick your nose in the air, but if you're sticking your nose in the air, where also are your eyes, but too high, looking down on others. 
This psalmist is starting in a place of humility. He's not putting himself up into elevated positions or elevated status. How can he possibly do that when he's speaking to the Lord? Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised to, matter of degree, too high. What we get is this idea that nothing is above God. What we have to understand is that we are to properly order our loves in our lives. And if you place yourself over the Lord, then if you raise your eyes too high, you are looking at self and not the Lord. If you exalt your heart too high over and above the things of God's kingdom, then you are raising and actually offering your heart to something that is over and above, something that you love and desire more than you desire God. This is actually something that we know quite quite a lot about. So when we read these words, we have to understand something of what it is saying. And ultimately, it is in agreement with Romans chapter 12 that tells us to live in harmony. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own, what? Eyes. Don't look at yourself. Don't, don't exalt yourself and then look at yourself and be self-aware and self-conscious and then always devoted to pleasing self. There must be something over and above the self that is higher. Do not be haughty. He, he says this. He says, uh, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Again, we've got to We've got to admit, this sounds weird. We're supposed to be digging into marvelous theology that represents something great about God, right? So we hear the psalmist and we go, is he saying for us to be uh, dumb and dull and not concerned with great and high and mighty things of theology? And to that, we have to say, no, that's not what he's talking about. Pride wants to exalt itself ambitiously aiming high for the sake of who? Not for the Lord, but to the self. The psalmist wants more than self. The ambitious mind rather than soul. The ambitious mind races to prove its superiority. The ambitious hands work to secure self-acclaim, self-prestige, self-help for one's self. Colossians 2.5 says this, it suggests that there is the prospect of captivity in philosophy and empty deceit. What this is actually talking to us about is, is that we're not trying to exalt oneself and then think about oneself. We're not trying to take worldly ideals and philosophies and empty things that are deceptive and exalt them high. What he's not saying here is that he's not going to be a theologian. The psalmist is not saying that he's not concerned with the great and mighty and marvelous things of God. What he's saying is, is that I'm not going to pay attention to the things that are the rulers and principalities of this world or philosophies of living that have nothing to do with its creator. It's not going to spend time, waste time in the things of this world when what we could be doing, the psalmist says, is looking upon the Lord. So what we're not saying is, is that theology is not important. That's not what the psalmist is after here. The psalmist actually wants you to be ambitious in a certain kind of way. We're not talking about the great things of God and his marvelous handiwork. We're not talking about the theology, but we are talking about something specific. Verse 2, it says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul. 
So he's, he's already said what he's not going to do, what he hasn't done, what he couldn't be convinced of doing. Now he's saying what he is doing. And, and this is very interesting because, again, this kind of meets our uh, religious sensibilities and we just go, uh, number one, what's a soul? We've got to answer that question. Number two, how is it that he is proclaiming to do it? We spend a lot of time here, even in this church, talking about how unable we are, and here he is talking about how he is doing something. I want to make a specific point on those few things. The first thing is, what is the soul? The soul is all of you that should know and love God. It's that spirit inside of you, that thing that is indestructible, that thing that God redeems for eternal purposes, that kingdom person that you are. Now, is there something to your body? Yes, absolutely. God created you. He fearfully and wonderfully made you. He is redeeming your body. We know that at the end of time, he will actually completely redeem your body. He will raise it from the grave, and you will live even bodily, as mysterious as that is, in eternity forever. But here, it's talking about the soul. So we talk, we learn a lot about the mind. We, we talk about being renewed in our minds. We talk a lot about the duty of our hands. But then we also need to recognize that there is a part of you that has no weight, no, uh, no essence of smell, no way that you could measure it, but that is altogether you and who God created you uniquely. It is a soul. For the purposes of even some of the news this week, we want to be very, very clear here at City Church that we believe in the soul. We believe that God creates the soul, that he knits bodies together in the womb, but in some ineffable, intangible, mysterious, amazing way, God actually creates souls, and at the moment of conception, actually delivers that soul and body, creates it, fosters it, grows it. We here at City Church believe in the soul. We believe in the soul, and here the psalmist is saying, I have calmed my soul. I have calmed my soul. I have quieted my soul. I want to take those two things separately. Not that they're meant to be, but this morning that we could extract something from it. First, we understand that he is actually doing something. That one of the fruit of the Spirit is actually self-control. As paradoxical as that seems, the Spirit actually forms you in such a way that he delivers self-control. Shouldn't that be spirit control if the Spirit is gifting you with it? No, we're to be uh, loving and peace and patient and kind. We're to be gentle and good and self-controlled. We're to be faithful and self-controlled. We're to be loving and self-controlled. Self-control is actually a fruit of the Spirit. And what he's saying is, is that he, through self-control, through discipline, through duty, has actually done, done something to calm his soul. There are no spasms or convulsions in his soul. When he ascends into worship, his soul is at rest in God, and he says that his soul is in that place. Romans 6 says this, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. And what this song is saying is that you can do that in your soul. And we have to have a question here. We have to uh, look inwardly. We have to examine this passage and then look inwardly at our souls. And so I have a question for you this morning. Is your soul calm? 
Now, by God's grace, if it is, I want you to just uh, be thankful for that. If you have a calm soul, those of us who struggle with anxiety and fear uh, would give almost anything for it. So if God is doing that work in you and you have a calm soul, wonderful. Boast in Christ. Boast that he has done that in you. Do you have a calm soul? For many of us, the answer is no, not really. When the winds and the waves come in our lives, I am disquieted. I am uncalm. I am not at rest. Here the psalmist is saying that you can be harmonious and peaceful and patient not dramatic and agitated and afraid and angry. Your soul can actually be calm. Romans 6 says, do not present your members uh, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but then it goes along to say, present yourselves to God as those who are raised from death into life and whose members to God should be presented as instruments of righteousness. Is your soul being presented as an instrument of righteousness, of calmness? He goes on to say not just, but I have quieted my soul. He says, but I have quieted, sorry, he doesn't just go on, he doesn't just say I have calmed my soul. He says, I have quieted my soul. What does it mean for your soul to be quiet? And here I think about uh, Augustine, this church father that uh, examines the affections of the heart. If there ever was a man who did not bother himself with things that were too high and marvelous in this world, but took a look at the affections and desires of the heart, it is him. And what he says is, my soul was restless. Take that word apart a bit. It was restless. His soul was restless until it found its rest in God. That's what Augustine teaches us this morning that there can actually be a place of rest. It turns out that there is such a thing as a loud soul, one that is discontent, that is dissatisfied, that is agitated, that is unfocused, that is chaotic. And maybe this morning you're hearing that and you just go, that's me. You've spoken to what's going on inside of me. There is a restlessness. And what I want you to see is that there is hope, that there can actually be a quieting of your soul. Is your soul quiet? Personally, I I just want to make an application here that I find that my soul is most restless when I am in sin. When I am in unrepentant, unconfessed sin, my soul is just agitated. I'm angry with my children. I have a bitter word. I'm just chaotic. I spin out of control when I am in sin. But if I am faithful, If I am, by God's grace, looking to be faithful to God, I find that there is a quietness in me. One that is not self-bought or uh, worked up in some way, something that is delivered to me. And yes, something also that the Lord has allowed for there to be a certain amount of self-control. Faithfulness in the Father, who is trustworthy and sovereign, gives us quiet hearts. I'm going to say that one more time. Faithfulness in the Father, who is sovereign and in control of all things, actually results in more quietness in your soul. And it's like something. Verse 2b says that it's like a weaned child. A weaned child. That's a, a word picture for us this morning. 
For, for the mothers that are in the room, you know this about uh, young infants, that when they are breastfeeding, that they need their moms. And they let you know about it. They, they tell you about it. They need you. They sense when you are near, that you have a smell that they recognize by God's grace and just marvelous work. Women are just superheroes. You have a superpower to create and sustain life. It is unbelievable. It is amazing. We want to celebrate you this day. We also want to celebrate those children that are here. It's amazing. It's marvelous. But if we can be honest, when they are little, they need you. They want you. They are restless. They're always seeking after you. When you're not nearby, they cry. But here, he says that he is like a weaned child that instead of needing a mother, just enjoys and is content with his mother. A weaned child can actually be content in really marvelous ways. I'm not a mother, but I do have a daughter uh, that uh, is just amazing. My daughter is so amazing. And one of the most amazing things about her is the way that she looks at me. And I imagine that other daughters look at their fathers in such and such a way, but I like to imagine that it's something that's just unique to us. My daughter looks at me I mean, really throughout her life, from the time that she was very little to this very week, in a way where she looks at my face like I have all of the answers, but that she has zero questions for me. Like just this marvelous assurance in my face. I'm not saying that I've earned that. It's just like this marvelous little intimate gift that he's given the two of us. She will for sure discover that I am just a rotten sinner and that I have failed in so many different ways. And I'm sure there will be counseling sessions, you know, in the future where there are lots of things that are discussed and talked about my many failings. But for this one season of our life, she looks at my face and she's just content with her father. She's not restless. This is the word picture that we get. And then it switches from this exaltation of God. O God, to O Israel. Verse 3, it says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. It switches from O Lord to O Israel. It's going from uh, the, the theology and doxology to an application to God's people. And it says for us to hope in the Lord. The Lord is the source of confident contentment, and he allows for us to be calm and quiet. Where? In our hands? In our minds? This verse says, our souls. This passage is talking about what can happen in our souls. And he doesn't just say that it's, it's brief, it's fleeting, it, 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 it'll elude us for all of eternity. It says that this hope is from this time forth and what? Forevermore. From this time forth and forevermore, this hope is eternal. This hope is eternal, so there is no need for restlessness. I want you to follow the math here. If maybe you've drifted away or you've started some sort of uh, you know, discussion in your own mind, I want you to know this and to know this for sure, that if there is a hope that lasts forever, your troubles today don't matter. You're like, oh man, you're not allowed to say that. These things really, really do matter. I want you to put the comparison of the travails that you have this day, no matter how grand, no matter how great, and compare them to an eternity of hope with a quieted and calmed soul. Whatever is making you afraid today will not make you afraid, not for millennia, not for eons, for an immeasurable eternity. 
The things that you woke up uh, uh, going over your to-do list this morning and just were afraid of, is this not going, it's going to pale in comparison to eternity. The problems in your marriage will be eclipsed by the everlasting love of Jesus, our husband, for how long? Ever, forever, it will be gone. When it talks about an eternal hope, it's actually giving you a tool, whether you choose to use it or not, to quiet and calm your soul. Why? Because you have an everlasting hope, an everlasting hope. I mean, I just don't know that there is better news for the soul that needs quiet and calm, but maybe there is. Where can this kind of calm, quiet contentment, this eternal faith, this eternal hope be found? Well, I'll tell you, it's not in Genesis 3. It's not. If you go to Genesis 3, what you will discover is Adam's original sin was very ambitious. Okay, we started off talking about the ambitions of man. How is there anything more ambitious than what we find there in Genesis chapter 3? We see that the snake slithers into God's perfect garden, in, climbs into this tree possibly that uh, God had said, do not eat of the fruit of it. Trust me, it will bring death. And the serpent whispers something. It whispers something. It says, Adam, uh, your heart needs to be higher. Your eyes need to be higher. They need to be higher than what God said. And Satan whispers this lie. You can be like God. And then all of a sudden, there's this thing in Eve and Adam's heart. I can be like God? I can be bigger than God. I can be king of my own kingdom. I can expand this kingdom and build things that are for my glory rather than his. I can do something apart from God and and, and claim it as something that I did on my own. That sounds great. What ambition is there but that? What we see is Satan whispers, you can be like God. In this way, sinful ambitions collapsed that eternal hope of the human heart into restless vanity and into selfish sickness. Our ambitions were set too high. They were higher than God. We, we disordered our loves. We put our love of self over our love of the perfect father. And this is not just something that happens in Genesis chapter 3. It's something that you know. That if we looked at your internet history, it is not searching out the glories of God. It's searching out that next thing that you want for yourself. It's, it's educating yourself so that you can uh, be a better you. It's elevating your love and your primary perceived needs over those things that God wants for you, desires for you, has procured for you in the gospel. What we understand is, is that when Satan whispers this lie, you can be like God, every single one of us have believed it. Ambitious men have pursued God-likeness without godliness. They have pursued hopeless hubris rather than hopeful holiness for all of human time. We need 
not Adam. We need not this desire to be like God the way that he did or the way that we do. We need a second Adam to resist that temptation, to be perfectly obedient, not king for himself, but a suffering servant. We need one who, whose ambition does not exalt his own heart or lift his eyes too high, but focuses steadfastly on the Father. And what we find is in Matthew 4, that man has come. Jesus was there in Matthew 4, led into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, this was a real thing that really happened. For 40 days, he fasted. He did not take food on board. And in the moment of 40 days of fasting, we all, uh, hopefully you uh, uh, participated with us in our one day of fasting last week, and uh, your tummy growled, and uh, uh, you were very hungry. This is 40 days that our Savior retreated into the wilderness, led by the Spirit, and chose not to eat food. And there in the midst of whatever weakness that might have been, he was hungry. And it says this, Satan slithers up to him. It doesn't say that, but we can imagine poetically that he goes there to whisper to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread so that you might eat. In the second Adam, Jesus He does not break. He's not fooled, not even for one moment. He doesn't let the pangs of hunger release him into a sinful motivation to fill his own belly. But he says and declares, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. That's how man lives. Thank you, Jesus, for succeeding where we haven't. Then Satan tries to take him and put him on the temple mount, and he says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it says he will command his angels concerning you. He will keep your foot from being struck. You will not die. Throw yourself down. Prove that you are the Son of God. And what does Jesus respond? But you're not to test God. He's not convinced. You could be big. You could be bigger than God himself, and Jesus does not set his eyes higher than his Father. He's focused. And here in one last twisted hope that Satan has, he takes him up onto a high mountain and shows him all of the kingdoms. So for us, we hear that you can be like God, and we're like, I could be king of my kingdom. Here, Jesus is taken up onto a high mountain and shown all of the kingdoms of earth, and Satan goes, I will give them all to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. And the second Adam, what does he say? He says, be gone, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. That whispering, you could be greater than your father, he did not believe. He rejected categorically, and he was perfectly faithful. He had perfect hope in the father. He did not set his eyes too high. He did not elevate his heart to the place of needing exaltation and worship apart from what the God, the Father, willed. Rather, what he does, Jesus, the second Adam, sets his eyes on the Father, and his ambition is to do the will of the Father. 
Jesus is the one who has calmed and quieted his soul, has mastered his ambitions and driven them towards the will and the glory of the Father. This is a great and mighty gospel for you this morning. If you in your heart of hearts have tried to make a kingdom apart from God, you need to rely on the second Adam who does it perfectly, who is untempted and who in his perfection delivers that to you that your ambitions can be like his, and that is to please the Father and do his will. Will you have hope? Will you have faith in this Jesus? The last thing that I want to do is actually make some sort of application of this gospel this morning very briefly. If we see Jesus reacting in this way, we then do not lift our hearts as sacrifices to some idol that we place over God, whether it is a, a God external or internal. We do not raise our eyes higher than the cross of Christ, knowing that he is the one that is finally paid for all of it. Rather, the Christian life is one of extraordinary humility. If you read this passage, I'm going to do it again because it's so short. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted above yours. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with the great things. I do not occupy myself with things too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The Christian life is one of extraordinary humility. Why? Because our souls are calmed. They are quieted. Our souls are calmed. They are quieted. In the gospel, you have the greatest tools for a calmed and quieted soul. Do you want it? Do you want that kind of life? First Thessalonians says this. It's very paradoxical to us. We think that if we, uh, if we are uh, sons and daughters of the Most High Father, we've got to go out there and work. We've got to build big nonprofits. We've got to do great things. We've got to put our hands to great works. We've got to build something that often ends up looking like a personal kingdom, if we're being honest. No, nobody is more acquainted with that paradox than me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says this, aspire to live quietly. There's that word again. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. That doesn't sound like that big kingdom building initiative, does it? We, we see this confirmed in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It says, some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in who? In the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly. There's that word again. And to earn their own living. Do not grow weary of doing what? Doing good. Just simple, faithful, calmed and quieted goodness. If we're being honest, many of us are very agitated by that. We take a look at our present lives and we just go, they're too simple to glorify a great God. 
They're, they're, they're not big enough. I don't earn enough money to really bless people the way that I want to. I'm not uh, as intellectually stimulated as I need to be in order to hold high-minded conversations. I'm not uh, as, as diligent as I need to be to, uh, to, to invite people in and to teach them about. All of us have these great and grandiose ideas of what it means to live a Christian life. And here, we're actually told that it is calm, that it is quiet. I hope that that's encouraging to you this morning, that for those of us who have believed the lie from people around us that say, listen, you've got to do great things in order to earn God's approval and favor, hear this, just simply have a calm and quiet soul in Jesus. Second, 1 Timothy 2 says this, and I'll end here, pray for everyone that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Pay attention to this. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth of the gospel. How is God winning souls? How is he convincing them of the truth of the gospel? Just by Christians leading peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified lives, good and pleasing lives in the sight of whom? The culture, the next door neighbor, the Joneses? No, in sight of God, our Savior, who desires everybody to be saved and to come into the knowledge of truth. That is the essence of the gospel. The calmed and quiet soul that hopes eternally in Jesus Christ is an ambitious soul. You know how I know that it's ambitious? Because you really want it. For, for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, the Spirit is like reforming those like inward motivations. For all of us, we hear about this calmed and quieted Spirit, and you want it. That's an ambition. And it's an ambition that is worth being diligent to follow. You can find it in Jesus Christ and his discipleship of you. Let me pray. God and Father, we give you great thanks this morning uh, for everything that you are. And, and uh, Lord, we ask you, just plead with you, that you would give us the kind of self-control to look steadfastly at Jesus, to behold your glorious face, to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit, just simply to receive a calmed and quieted soul. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this great opportunity together. Lord, I pray your blessing on the rest of this morning and pray in your great grace that you would give us, that we would receive from you a gospel that is unimaginably hopeful, unimaginably eternal, and that we would place our hope in it. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.